Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read to verse 22. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by whom he said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The writer of Hebrews has introduced us to this mysterious character called Melchizedek. It, in the it is in the context of the superior nature of Jesus. Remember, part of what the writer is trying to do is to prove that Jesus Christ is our high priest in heaven. And we've already looked a little bit at the story of Melchizedek. We know very little bit of him other than the two short passages that are given in Genesis chapter 14 and then again in Psalm 110 and then here in these chapters in Hebrews. Now some have suggested that Melchizedek is an Old Testament Christophany. A Christophany is a word that just simply means a pre-incarnate visitation or appearance of Jesus. Others have suggested that he was a supernatural messenger. Some have even speculated that he might be Shem. Remember one of the original sons of Noah who survives and he lives for hundreds of years in the post-flood world. What we do know about the man is the meaning of his name. Remember, it means Melech, which is king, and Kesedek, which means righteous. So his name means the king of righteousness or the king of peace. We know that Melchizedek's ancestry is a mystery. Because his mother isn't mentioned, his father isn't mentioned. His birth isn't mentioned, his death isn't mentioned. So why does the writer of Hebrews spend so much time on this mysterious figure? And again, we've learned because the writer of Hebrews wants to convince the reader who the primary audience in this case are Jewish people who have come into a right relationship with God in Christ but who are living under enormous pressure, who think that they might want to return to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews has already given the historical argument by drawing attention to, the, to Melchizedek's relationship to Abraham in verses 1 through 10. Melchizedek is superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Why? 
He has argued because Abraham paid the priest king tithes. And the priest king blessed Abraham, not the other way around. Remember in verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the better. In the earthly ministry of the tabernacle and the temple, the priests received tithes. But in Genesis chapter 14, the priests symbolically gave tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. All of these examples were meant to convince the Jewish reader of the inferiority of the Aaronic priesthood and the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood, which has now been taken on by Jesus. That's not even the right way to put it. The right way to put it is, which has always been and always will be in the person of Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews will now move to further arguments for the superiority of Christ. And his main text is going to be taken from Psalm 110, verse 4. And that's why it's repeated. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. His argument is that the psalmist anticipated the future setting aside of the priesthood of Aaron and the priests in the temple. He is arguing that it is impossible, impossible, impossible to have two God-ordained or two divine priesthoods operating side by side. And the fact that God allowed and established a new order proves that the old order was weak and ineffective. But the writer is basically saying, like those commercials on TV, but wait, there's more. (laughs) And I know this is so hard for some of you to understand. But what he is arguing is if the priesthood was established by the law and Moses, which it was, if the priesthood which was established by the law and Moses is now set aside, he's also going to argue that if the priesthood of Aaron has been set aside, so has the law that established the priesthood of Aaron. In verse 11, the law made nothing perfect. When the Bible uses the term perfect, it doesn't mean sinless. What it means is accepted by God or acceptable by God. So the sacrifices offered by these priests made nothing Perfect. If you just flip over just a couple of chapters to chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, in chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things that can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. That means accepted by God. Aaron was made a priest, but not forever. Aaron offered sacrifices that made no one perfect. Jesus is a priest forever. How do we know? Because he died and he came back to life. The writer is saying that the psalmist said that Jesus would be a priest forever. This is evidenced by his endless life in verse 16. Did God acknowledge Aaron and his sons in the elaborate ceremonies that are talked about in Exodus chapter 28 and chapter 29 and chapter 30? The answer is yes. But the Lord never swore an oath for an eternal priesthood for them. The writer is arguing because God never intended... For the priesthood to last forever, it would come to an end. But when God ordained Christ to be a priest forever, he always intended that he would be a priest forever. So let me try to make this clear. What is the writer of Hebrews trying to say? 
The priesthood of Jesus is infinitely superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Grace is infinitely superior to the law. Jesus is infinitely better than the types and the shadows that prefigured him. The substance of Jesus is better, better, better than all the symbols of the past. Is there anybody in the whole wide world that you care about? Some of you are saying yes. Some of you are saying there's zero. There's nobody like that in my life. Okay, talk to me for just a second. Pretend it's a Pentecostal church. Is there anybody that you care about? It might be children, grandchildren, whatever. Do you have pictures of them? Which would you rather have, a picture of them or them? Now, it's okay to have a picture of them, just in case it's inconvenient and and you're in a place where they can't be with you. But imagine if a person said, keep the picture, but I'm going to take your loved one. Would any of you be satisfied with that? So the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, why would you be satisfied with the symbol when you can have the substance? And so he's saying the blood of Jesus is infinitely superior to the blood of bulls and goats. And so now look at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection, read a person accepted by God. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. When Moses received the law, he also received instructions concerning who is going to be a priest, the sacrifices that were acceptable, and how they were going to be offered. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Think about what the writer is saying. If acceptance by God could be had through the law and through the priesthood, why in the world would the writer of Genesis and the book of Psalms bring up the subject of Melchizedek? The priesthood of Jesus, he is basically saying, is the reason why it was brought up. Because the priesthood of Jesus has set aside the priesthood of Aaron. Now think about it. Imagine, put yourself in the position of a first century Jew who is toying with the idea that God will accept the Jew apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. And it's their way of thinking, God will accept me on the basis of the revelation that God gave to Moses and the law and the sacrifices. What about the person who wants to return to the familiar and comfortable rules and rituals and ceremonies of Judaism? And you might be thinking, why would they want to do that? And the reason why they would want to do that is because they were living in a world where it became progressively more and more and more difficult to be a Christian. Imagine you're living in a world where people say, well, what are you? I'm a Jewish person and they leave you alone. You say, I'm a Christian, and they say, then I'm going to crucify you, or I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to chop your head off, or I'm going to make sure that you can't get a job, or I'm going to make sure uh, that you can't teach in the public school system, or I'm going to make sure that you can't fight fires in Atlanta, Georgia. Imagine you're living in a world where you grew up in a religious tradition like Hinduism, or Greek Orthodoxy, or even Roman Catholicism, and you're constantly fighting with your family, and you're constantly fighting with your friends because they want to know why won't you uh, dedicate your baby or, or baptize your baby, or why won't you observe the rules and the rituals in which you grew up in. And you're tired of fighting with them and you're tired of all of that. And so you decide that in order to make them happy, that's what you're going to do. The writer knows that there were people who thought precisely that God had 
a plan and that, that, there, that there's all kinds of different plans. That he has a plan for the Jew and he has a plan for the Gentile. That, he, that there were people who thought, okay, how does a person have a right relationship with God? And remember, he's speaking to a group of people who, who believe exactly what many of your family and friends believe. You know, there's lots of different ways that you can go to heaven. There's Hinduism for the Hindus. There's Buddha for the Buddhists. There's Muhammad for the, for the Muslims. And the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, for the Jew who believes that you can have a right relationship with God through Judaism, be prepared to be disappointed because guess what? There is only one way. There is only one way. There's only one way to be accepted by God, and that's through the sacrifice of Christ. It's through, it's through the person of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus because all of these other things were just simply types and shadows. No one, no one, no one ever had a right relationship with God through the sacrifices of Moses or through the law of Moses. Well, then how did they have a right relationship with God? Because the law of Moses would demonstrate that you were a lawbreaker. And the sacrifices of Moses were types and pictures that look forward to a real sacrifice that would be satisfied by God. In other words, the only difference between a person living in the Old Testament who has a right relationship with God is because they looked forward to the promises that God had made. For you as a Christian, you look backwards into the promise that God has made. And you see, this is why I can say to you that everyone, everyone, and every time period has always been saved by grace. It's always been by faith. And it's always been by a person. And it's always been by a sacrifice. And so the writer... is trying to remind the Jewish person who is holding on to the hope that they can have a right relationship with God through Judaism, that that can't happen. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The priests made offerings. Yes, they pointed to a perfect priest and a perfect offering. Well, if Aaron's offering and his son's offerings were perfect, why would the writer of Psalms, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even bring up the subject of an eternal priest? Verse 17, for you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer's basically saying the Jewish system of sacrifices never offered a permanent solution to the problem of sin. They could never provide a permanent freedom from guilt. They could never provide cleansing of the conscience in verses 18 and 19. And again, in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, if you want to just sneak ahead, it says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God the argument that he's going to make make this powerful argument that he's going to make is this how are you going to have a right relationship with God? Well, I got to go to the temple every year and I got to offer the sacrifice every year. Well, what happens the next year? I got to do it again. And what do you got to do the next year? I got to do it again. Is he suggesting there's two ways to be saved? Ritual performance of the sacrifices of Aaron and Moses, and then the sacrifice of Jesus. Is that what he's suggesting? He is not suggesting that. He's reminding everyone there was never, ever two ways to be saved. There was always only one way. You mean from the very beginning? Yeah, from the very beginning. You mean from the very time that Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden and you have Cain and you have Abel and Cain offers 
a sacrifice of fruits and vegetables. And Abel offers the sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. One is accepted by God. The other is rejected by God. And I know it sounds horribly simple, but it remains true. There's always and forever will be only two types of religion. The religion that is rejected by God and the religion that is accepted by God. What is the religion that is accepted by God? It's one that involves grace. It's one that involves a person. It's one that involves faith. It's one that involves a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And what's the other one? Everything else. Everything else. The Jewish system of sacrifice never never offered a permanent solution to sin, could never provide permanent freedom from guilt. And so now, look what it says in verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Did Aaron's priesthood serve the law? The answer is yes. For the priesthood being changed, in what way was it changed? The temporary priesthood of Aaron was changed to the permanent priesthood of Jesus. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Well, wait, wait a minute. You mean the law also changed? Yeah. The law established Aaron's priesthood. The law regulated Aaron's priesthood. But the law also made no provision for a priesthood outside of the tribe of Levi. Or through the sons of Aaron. Well then how do you have the priesthood of Jesus? Well the priesthood of Jesus must precede the law. It does in Genesis 14. Does it even appear after the law? Yeah. In the book of Psalms. When the Holy Spirit testifies through David the prophet. You are a priest forever. Who is the priest that he's making reference to? The Messiah. And so the priesthood of Jesus must be separate from the law. And it must be separate from the tribe of Levi. And so he says in verse 13. The priesthood of Jesus is separate from the law. And then it is separate from the Levitical tribe. Look in verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken. That's Jesus. Belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Well, what tribe is he from? Judah. Did anyone from the tribe of Judah ever serve as a priest? No. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Why? Because he's the son of David. Why? Because David is the son of Jesse. Why? Because Jesse is eventually the great, 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 great grandson of Judah. So he says, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Did Moses ever hint that a priest would come from anything other than Levi? No. The law of Moses never, no, never, no, never, ever, ever authorized anyone from the tribe of Judah to be a priest. The Jewish people are thinking, but you just said Jesus is a priest. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask you the simple question. Is Jesus a priest? Yes. Well, how can this be? The writer is saying, because the law has been changed. How can that be? 
For those of you who happen to be here on Sunday, remember I taught through Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And and again, I don't want to belabor the point and I don't want to preach that sermon all over again. You can get it in the media room. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 17... Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. How did Jesus fulfill the law? By living it perfectly. By expressing it personally. Remember, Jesus fulfills the law by keeping it in every way. Remember, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law by being the subject of all of the types, pictures, and shadows. And in verse 15, it says, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises Another priest. You mean God always intended that another priest was going to make the scene? Yes. And so now we see the priesthood of Jesus is everlasting. In verses 16 and 17, look what it says. Who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. What does he mean? Who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. The idea being God by The power of the Holy Spirit gave to Moses the law in order to instruct human beings how to behave. Remember in the Gospel of John it says, the law came by Moses. But in the very next breath it says, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? Who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. Moses ordered Aaron's sons to serve in the Levitical capacity as the priests. But then they died and they ceased to be priests. And then their sons had to be priests and then their sons had to be priests. But the writer of Hebrews says, but according to the power of an endless life, God's plan was always for you to have the kind of a priest who would live forever. So what evidence do you have that there's been a change in the law? That's part of the point. Who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Because the psalmist by the Holy Spirit points to the other priest. The priest who is like Melchizedek. Here's the point. What makes Jesus qualified to be the priest? The writer of Hebrews basically is saying, well, you know, he died on the cross and he came back to life and he lives forever. Do you think that's pretty impressive credentials? See, you're laughing, but you're supposed to get that. What priest of Aaron ever died and came back to life? Not a single one. What makes Jesus qualified? Who gave him the authority? Well, it's very different from Aaron's sons. The Levitical priests were given the authority by the law and by bodily descent and by birth into the right family. The family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. So what qualifies Jesus? He has an endless life. It's not a question of pedigree, but of personal power and authority. It might seem crazy to you, but imagine you met someone and this someone said, I want to start my own religion. And you go, you won't be the very first person who's ever started their own religion. Hey, could you give me some tips on how to start your own religion and then get people to follow you? I would say, yeah, die and come back to life. Now, how many people are going to respond, I don't think I can do that. 
Well, then maybe you should reconsider your plans to start your own religion. In verse 17, it says, for he testifies. Now, when he says he testifies, you know who he's making reference to? He's making reference to God, the Holy Spirit, speaking supernaturally through the prophet David. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But testify is more than just simply acknowledge that something was being said. Remember, if you're involved in a court order or something like that, you have to, sometimes you have to go to court and you're called to testify. And when you're called to testify, you're called to bring information to the court that is true. And so here, God, the Holy Spirit, is making an oath and testifying concerning the priesthood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews could be accused of making all of this up. So remember the Jewish person who's listening to the writer of Hebrews, who's making this claim, guess what? The Aaronic priesthood, gone. Law, changed. Jesus, the new priest. Jesus, the new law. And so the Jewish reader is going to ask the same question I'm hoping each and every one of you would say. Show me in the Bible where that is. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. The Holy Spirit says, you are a priest forever. Pause. Is David a priest forever? Is David the king? As the king, David, was he also a priest? No. So if he's not talking about David, who is he talking about? He's talking about David's son. He's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is the priest forever. And so what is the testimony of the New Testament? What does it say in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is Jesus the Messiah? The answer is yes. His ministry will never cease. Why? Because his life never ceases. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Pause. The law which authorized and instituted the priest, instituted their function, instituted their duties, has been annulled. Do you know what the word annulled means? Have you ever heard of a group of a man and a woman who got married and their marriage was annulled? It means it was made void. In the Roman Catholic tradition, they have a a, a system whereby if you hire the right guy and you know the right people, you can get the right annulment. And what the the Roman Catholic Church will basically say is if if your marriage gets annulled, it was like it never existed. And so what is he saying? The law which authorized and instituted the priests, the functions, their duties has been annulled. That means made void. But then what happened? It's substituted for a new law. What law is that? It's the better law. What better law is that? It is everything that Jesus has said and done in the New Testament. Remember we talked a little bit about that for those of you who were here on Sunday. That's exactly what happened. So how was it canceled? By the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. In what way was the former commandment weak and unprofitable? The writer of Hebrews is anticipating the argument by the reader. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't the law given by God? It's the answer. Yes. Wasn't the law given by God to Moses? 
Isn't it a supernatural law? Yes. Well, then why would God do such a thing? Why would God give the law and then cancel the law? Because the answer has to be that God never intended the law to be permanent. He always intended that it would be temporary. God never intended the Aaronic priesthood to be permanent. He always intended it to be temporary. It was a preparation. A preparation for what? A permanent priest. Well, what were the temporary sacrifices for? They were a preparation. For what? A permanent sacrifice. The partial gives way to the perfect. The temporary gives way to the permanent. By the way, was the ritual and was the sacrifice a way of salvation? The answer is no. Well, what's the true significance of the priesthood? What's the true significance of the sacrifice? They became a type and a picture of the true priesthood of Jesus and the true sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 19, for the law made, read it for yourself, for the law made nothing perfect. Wait, wait, for the law made almost everything perfect. Is that what it says? For the law made some things perfect. The law made a few things perfect. There's no way to make nothing anything other than nothing. He writes, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Here's the writer's argument. The law made nothing perfect. Jesus makes everything perfect. Now remember what the word perfect means? Accepted by God. Does the Bible tell us that Abel was perfect? Yes, in the sense that he was accepted by God. Was Abraham perfect? Yes, in the sense that he was accepted by God. Isaac and Jacob, perfect. Yes, in the sense that they were accepted by God. David, yes, in the sense accepted by God. In what way was the law weak and unprofitable? The writer's arguing it never saved anyone. It never gave anyone a right standing with God. The law didn't make it possible for people to enter into the presence of God. So imagine, for those of you who remember Sunday, I talked about 613 commandments. If you knew all 613 commandments, and you faithfully obeyed, and you never, ever, ever, no, never, ever, ever, broke ever, ever, ever a single commandment, could you enter into the presence of God? Theoretically, yes. Did anyone ever do that? No. Even one time? No. Out of all of the millions, possibly billions of people, How many survived keeping the law intact? That would be zero. So did the law make it possible for people to experience the presence of God? No, it had exactly the opposite. The law revealed the problem of sin and the enforcement of the trespass. The law was a constant reminder that the sin problem had to be dealt with and that the sin problem had to be answered once and for all. And the law made nothing perfect that is accepted by God. Again, look at the phrase, a better hope through which we draw near to God. The better hope is a guaranteed hope in verses 20 and 21. We're saved by the gospel. We're saved by faith. We're saved by Jesus. And so the Christian has hope. And the Christian has 
access to God. Why is all of this important? Remember, remember, remember. For the Jewish person who wants to have hope and wants to have access to God, is he or she going to get it through Judaism? No. For the person who wants to have hope and for the person who wants to have access to God, are they going to get it through religion? Are they going to get it through wishful thinking? Are they going to get it by being the best person they can possibly be? Remember when he says a better hope. Because that's one of the key words in the book of Hebrews. The, the, the Greek word is kriton. The writer has already said, Jesus has a better name than the angels, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the priest Aaron. Jesus has a better message. Jesus has a better rest. Jesus has a better ministry. Jesus will allow us to enter into a better sanctuary. Jesus will provide a better sacrifice. Are you starting to get the drift that maybe Jesus is? Well, isn't that arrogant for you to say that Jesus is better? You might think it's arrogant for me to say so, but the writer of Hebrews says he's better. Well, you're both arrogant then. Okay. What can I say? But we don't simply come to Jesus for salvation. We do that, but we do more. We come to Jesus for service. Coming to Jesus makes you a believer. But going to Jesus in service makes you a disciple. Salvation comes to us when we believe and accept Christ. Discipleship only comes by self-surrender and self-sacrifice. Salvation is free. Discipleship costs. And it's the cost of paying the price for a separated life. Salvation cannot be lost. Discipleship can be lost. Salvation can't be lost because it depends on God's faithfulness. Discipleship can be lost because it depends on your faithfulness. Preaching can bring people into a right relationship with God, but teaching Teaching encourages the saints to be disciples. You see, you were were saved to be something more than just simply a person who avoids hell. And look, the priesthood of Jesus is guaranteed. Look what it says in verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, in what sense? There's no record in the book of Exodus that the priests of Aaron were told by God that they would be priests forever. Verse 21, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Did God ever say to Aaron or to any of his children, you are a priest Forever. That's the point that the passage is making. The answer is that never happened. So what does this all mean? Verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And by the way, this is the first mention of the new covenant in the book of Hebrews. This is the first mention of the new covenant. And he calls it a better covenant. And remember what a surety is. It's a guarantee. Jesus is the guarantee. Most of you, I hope most of you, are familiar with the concept of guarantee. When you purchase someone and someone says, I guarantee it. Like the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. I guarantee it. Now, can you imagine you go in and they give you whatever it is that they give you and you look in the mirror and you go, I hate the way I look. And you go, and he says to you, look, I can change your clothes, but I can't change your face. I wasn't talking about the way that you actually look. 
I went to the men's warehouse and the guy says, your socks don't match. And I go, I, I don't wear them according to color. I, I, I wear them according to thickness. That's when the guy knew that I was in real need of help. He guarantees it. Now, remember, a guarantee is only as good as the person or the authority who makes the guarantee. Who has guaranteed the priesthood of Jesus? God. Now, again, so far from what you know about God, is he a liar? If he makes a promise, is he going to keep the promise? And that is the point. So when he says, so much more, Jesus has made a surety of a better covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant is beret. The Greek word for covenant, which is translated here, diatheke. The word means an agreement, a promise. And in the context, it means the agreement or the promise that God makes to humanity. And so here it means a covenant between God and man. In the Bible, a covenant falls into two categories. There are unconditional covenants and there are conditional covenants. There are at least eight covenants mentioned in the Bible. There was a covenant with Adam before the fall. And then there was a covenant after the fall. There was a covenant with Noah, and many of you remember it, that the earth would never again be completely destroyed by water, that there would be seasons in due time. And then there was a covenant with Abraham, and there was a covenant with Moses, and there was a covenant with, with David, and then there would be a covenant with the church. And then there would be a covenant with Israel in Jeremiah 31, 31. In Isaiah 42, verse 6. And the covenant that God makes with Israel is that God would eventually bring Israel back to himself. That he would forgive her iniquity and forget her sin. And that God would use the Jews to reach the Gentiles. And that God would establish the Jews in the land forever. And so the priesthood of Jesus is guaranteed, not by wishful thinking, but by God's oath. And since this is a better covenant, and since Jesus is the guarantee, I'm going to also suggest to you that he is the guarantor. Salvation is not something that we look forward to. It's something that we have. Remember, I told you that in the old covenant, people looked forward to Jesus. In the New Testament, we look back to Jesus. The old covenant looked forward to a future possession. The new covenant looks back at a present possession. In the Baker Bible commentary, the author puts it this way. He says, quote, one does not require a guarantor for what you already have. The new covenant, the rest of God, the promise of God, even salvation itself are presented in Hebrews as different aspects of the future consummation and the fulfillment of the word world to come, unquote. What does all of that mean? What it means is this. Do you have a right relationship with God in Christ? Yeah. Then you're saved. How long are you saved? Forever. The writer of Hebrews says, the writer of Ephesians says, you're already in heaven. And you're thinking, I don't feel like I'm there. The writer of Ephesians says, you are there. So what exactly is this new and better covenant? Again, the writer of Hebrews connects the role of Jesus as high priest with this better covenant. And these two things are connected. In what way? Because Jesus is a priest forever. We've already gotten that part. Can Jesus keep promises forever? Yes. Will he love you forever? Can he intercede for you forever? Will his sacrifice be acceptable to God forever? Will his grace be sufficient forever? 
So in what way is he our guarantee? His death, his burial, his resurrection has provided the righteous basis on which God could fulfill the terms of the covenant. And what are those terms? Remember Jesus says it at that last supper, which we talk about so much. Remember when he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to the disciples. He says, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you. Again, he gives thanks and praise. He takes the cup gives thanks and praise, and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for you. What is the basis of the covenant? He talks about it in John chapter 11 to Mary and Martha after Lazarus is dead. Remember, he says to him, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in in me will never die. What is the basis of the covenant? Know me, believe me, trust me. How how can we be sure that you're going to make good on your promise? I'm going to come back to life and I'm going to live forever. His perpetual priesthood makes it possible to keep his unbreakable promises. And now verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So the writer of Hebrews began with the historical argument in verses 1 through 10, continued with the doctrinal or the theological argument in verses 11 through 25. But now as we come to the end, he's going to have this practical argument as it relates to Christ and the believer. And he's going to begin by saying the priesthood of Jesus, perpetual. There used to be a lot of priests. What happened to them? They were prevented by death from continuing. How did the ironic priest lose his job? He died. It sounds simple, doesn't it? How could Jesus possibly lose his job? What's the right answer? Let's just pause for a moment. Did Jesus die? Yeah. Did he come back to life? Do you anticipate him ever dying, ever, ever, ever again? In the book of Revelation, he says, I am he who is dead, and now I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. I dare you to try and make him go away. And that's the point that he's making. This is the practical argument. But he, because he continues forever... Has an unchangeable priesthood. The Lord doesn't need to be replaced by a new generation. One day, these gray hairs that you see on top of my head, they're going to fall right out of my head. I think most of you know that I'm older right now than I've ever been before. And one day, you guys are going to have to replace me. But what's wonderful is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus will never be replaced. Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. Think about it. His intercession, unchanging. Sacrifice, unchanging. Access to God, unchanging. Verse 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about what the writer is saying. He's able to save who? You. To the uttermost. In what sense? You know what I actually think that the meaning of this text is? I think that the meaning of the text is there's nowhere that you could go to run away from his love, to run away from his grace, to run away from his mercy, to run away from his love, to run away from his grace. Imagine you go to Mars and there's the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. Imagine you could go to the end of the, the, this galaxy 
his love, grace, and mercy? What if you could somehow run to the furthest, most portion, wherever the universe comes to a a dramatic and abrupt halt, no matter where you go, he will find you, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Robert Murray McShane used to say, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I do not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. When McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Pause for a moment and just imagine. Imagine, imagine, imagine. There is Jesus in heaven praying for you. And you overhear his prayer. There's Jesus. He's praying for Gino or Jeremy or Mindy or Bob or Sheila or Jane or Linda praying for you. And you hear Jesus praying. Thank you. Thank you for their love. Thank you for that you've accepted them. Thank you that in me, and because I love them, you love them. Because I sacrificed for them, you've accepted them. Because I have been the satisfying solution to the problem of their sin. A sin that they rightly deserved punishment, but I took the punishment. Imagine Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying to the Father, and as he's praying to to the Father, he's interceding for you, and he's pleading for you, and he's reminding the Father all that he has done in order to make a provision for you. And you're hearing him, and you're hearing him, and as you're hearing him, can you even doubt for even a moment that the father is going to say, tough luck, Jesus. Can you imagine that? That's because it's not going to happen. Therefore, he's also able to save. He always lives to make intercession for them. If this thing is saying anything at all, It's saying that he's praying for you right now. Did he pray for you yesterday? Is he going to pray for you tomorrow and next month and next year? Will he follow you into the future? And as he does, will he continue to pray for you? Spurgeon would say, I have a great need for Christ. But I have a great Christ for my need. Isn't that good? In verse 26 it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Think about what he just said. What does the writer mean when he says, For such a high priest was fitting for us. Do you know what that word fitting for us means? It means suitable. Do you know what suitable means? It means appropriate in order to meet our need. Question. Was there any priest of Aaron who could meet your need? No. What kind of a priest do you need? Do you need a priest who can go to God once a year or every moment of every day? Why? Let's just do the math here. I think I need a priest who can go to God every moment of every day. Hey, by the way, do you need a priest who who can get God's ear and keep God's ear? Yes. Were the priests of Aaron holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners? Not if you believe the Bible. Aaron himself built a golden calf. The sons of Eli were gluttons and immoral. Were the priests of Aaron holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners? Question. Were they supposed to be holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners? Now we're going to ask another question. Are you holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separated from sinners? 
If the answer to the last question is no, then do you need someone who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners? And do you need someone who has become higher than the heavens itself? Do you need someone that God will always look at with favor and complete satisfaction? And for whatever reason, when he looks at Jesus, he looks at you. That's what that means. The ministry of Jesus, according to this, permanent, perpetual, perfect, eternal, holy son of God, Levitical priest, without exception, had to offer a sacrifice for themselves. Jesus will offer himself as the sacrifice. Jesus is a substitute for everything. But nothing can serve as a substitute for Jesus. And look what it says in verse 27. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Priests had to offer a sacrifice for themselves and then for the people. Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was perfect. And then offers himself The sacrifice, the satisfying sacrifice, the once and only sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to die over and over and over again. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law, that's the testimony given in the book of Psalm by the Holy Spirit through the prophet David appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And now we begin to understand it. Jesus, better than angels. Jesus, better than Moses. Jesus, better than Aaron. Jesus, better than everything. And so... Here's your question. Imagine I had some nice, wonderful balls of clay. How many of you ladies would trade me your engagement ring or your wedding ring for dirt clods? Do I have any takers whatsoever? I'll give you a dirt clod for your diamond. Are all of you smart enough to keep the diamond? Who wants to trade Jesus for something temporary, for something imperfect, incomplete? Why would you give up something that's guaranteed for something that's not guaranteed? The priesthood of Jesus, independent of the law, verses 11 through 15. Sufficient in every way, verses 18 and 19. Perpetual, verse 23. Permanent, verse 24. Holy, verse 26. Flawless, verse 28. Go to him. Pray to him. Believe in him. Trust. Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray for every single person who is going through that gigantic struggle, wondering if they should trust something other than Jesus. Trust someone other than Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would fill their hearts with the knowledge that Jesus really is everything. And so, Lord, again, we pray that that our heavenly priest who lives forever, who ever lives to make intercession for us, 
who reminds you constantly of all the reasons why we should be accepted, that we can take great confidence in that. And if you've never, ever trusted Jesus, if you know that you're a sinner, if you want to experience forgiveness of sin, you can trust him right now. Just in the deepest part of your heart, cry out to God and say, Lord, I need Jesus. I need the Jesus who lives forever, who loves forever. I need the Jesus who will be the satisfying solution to my sin. Not just today. I need the kind of Jesus who will cleanse my conscience today and tomorrow and forever. That's who I want for my Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.